Let's open our Bibles together to Romans chapter 8. As we read more about this great God. Our text is verses 18 through 25. I'm going to begin reading back in verse 15, just to catch up on the context. Here's the word of God. It says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer so that we may be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also ourselves having the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Let's pray together. Our great God and King and our Lord Jesus Christ, we have sung of your love, your great love, and how we know in the gospel, in the cross, the extent of your love. And now I ask that the spirit that you have sent to indwell us, the spirit that has adopted us as children of God, would teach us, would, would speak through our eyes to our minds and our hearts, through our ears to the inner man, what we are waiting for, what glory will be like that we might persevere faithfully through the trials of this life. Do this work in us, I pray, for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Some patch- passages are hard to preach. This is not one of them. Some passages, we'll get into them in a few weeks. Later on chapter 8, chapters 9, 10, and 11 from the book of Romans, there's some hard things there, as we'll see. But 
There's not a lot hard about this particular passage. This text fills our heart with great expectation of eternal joy and fulfillment and satisfaction in stark contrast to much of our lives today. The the optimists among us tell us that when life throws you lemons, make lemonade. But what happens when a hurricane lifts up a whole orchard full of lemons and dumps them on your head? Then what do you do? Sometimes we feel like this, or worse, we suffer. Plain and simple, we suffer. We tear our ACLs. We get arthritis and gout. We get cancer. We rebuild a house that was destroyed by the Waldo Canyon fire, and then a year later, have two, three, four, five hundred gallons of water and sludge and mud in our basement. Or we move from mountain shadows to black forest and a year later have our second house burned down by the black forest fire. We have our hearts ripped out by people who claim to care about us. We are abused by those in positions of trust. We are betrayed, abandoned, deceived. We take our children to the hospital or the cemetery. We are derided and in some cases tortured for loving Christ. This is life now. We ache. We throb, we sigh, we fall, we fail, we weep. And the world says, just cope. Take Prozac and just cope. Take drugs, cope. Take a walk. Take a vacation, take anything that will help you survive. Just cope until you can't cope any longer. But God says, just wait. Just wait. Just hang on a little longer. Just hold fast to the end of this road, and what is coming is beyond your possible imagination. It is amazing. It is beyond all comparison. No matter how awful this life gets, God says, if you just hang on, what is coming is not worthy to be compared to the most difficult thing you ever suffer in this life. If you could assign monetary value to the suffering, what is coming, you you can't put enough zeros and commas on the end to compare to the pain and suffering of now. How much greater will that glory be? But for the moment, the glory is covered up. It's waiting to be revealed, but it's not now. 
And that introduces the two main concepts or ideas that, that uh, make up, that dominate this paragraph that I read to you. The concept of waiting and the concept of glory. Did you see all the references to waiting, all the, all the implied waiting? All but one verse of 18 through 25 say something about waiting. In verse 18, we, he talks about something that will be revealed, but we've got to wait for it. It's not here yet. It's covered up for the moment. Verse 19 talks about the anxious longing of creation as it waits eagerly for something. Verse 20 speaks about hope, but hope means it's not here yet. Verse 22 talks about the pains of childbirth, and as you women know, some of you better than I do, if you're in the pains of childbirth, you don't have the child yet. You're waiting. Verse 23 talks about waiting eagerly. Verse 24 talks about being in hope, and verse 25 talks about with perseverance, we wait eagerly. Now, it's not a boring or dreadful waiting. It's not like waiting in the dentist's office, in the waiting room. You know, when you're sitting there and you're flipping through the magazines or on your iPhone or whatever, and you're sitting there and you know what you're waiting for. Some guy or some gal is going to climb up there and step inside your mouth with a pickaxe and just hack away for about 30 or 40 minutes, right? You know, and it's just drudgery. Or, or the waiting for voting, a voting line. You're sitting there for hours waiting, waiting. You don't know how the vote's going to turn out. Is my vote going to make a difference? And you're thinking, can't that, with all the technology, can't they have something by now that, you know, you just push a couple buttons on your phone and, and your vote is cast? Or the drudgery, the, the dread of waiting for test results if you go to the doctor and have blood tests. It's not, it's not that kind of waiting that's in this passage. It's an eager anticipation of something wonderful. This is, this is the, the girl who has been wooed and courted for the last year or so, and she knows one of these days, maybe today, maybe he's inviting me out, quote-unquote, for a hike, but it's going to be something else. He's going to have a ring in his pocket. And the anticipation, the eagerness of that day when he finally proposes. Or when, when he does propose, and now the waiting for that day when they will be joined as husband and wife. And there's a lot of work to do, and it's hard work. You've got to write hundreds and hundreds of invitations, and after you, that's after you sort through hundreds and hundreds more of who do we invite. And you got one side of the family saying, well, of course you've got to invite you know, cousin so-and-so that you haven't seen for 20 years. And Well, no, we can't invite them. We have money and all the hard things back and forth, and who's going to pay for this, and how do we afford that? And that part may be the drudgery, but the, the actual thing you're waiting for, is beautiful and wonderful, and you just can't wait. It can't come soon enough. It's that kind of waiting that Paul has in mind here in this section. Because we're waiting for glory. It was introduced in verse 17 that we will be glorified with Christ. Verse 18 talks about the glory that is to be revealed. Verse 21 talks about the glory of the children of God. That's what we're waiting for, glory. But glory is a, it's a powerful word, but it's a hard word to define. What exactly does glory mean? It's one of those words that you know how to use it, you know when it's appropriate to use it, but what exactly is it? How do you define glory? It's like defining yellow. Well, I know what yellow is, but how do you define yellow? 
glory. It's a, it's a weighty word. It's a big word. It's a powerful word. It's a wonderful word. Maybe we should not think so much of defining it, but describing it. How does the Bible use it to describe things? We find all kinds of uses of the word glory in the Scripture. In one way, on some occasions, it's used to describe the majesty and the awesomeness of God. Matthew 25 speaks of when the Son of Man comes in His glory, with all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. What does that mean exactly? I don't know, but it's going to be amazing. Later in Mark, he said, it talks about when they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. John spoke of this. He said, and the Word became flesh, speaking of Jesus, and He dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We saw His glory. Another way it's used is to describe when people give praise and honor to the majesty of God. At the birth announcement of Christ, the angels come and they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men. In Philippians 1, the apostle speaks of us having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Revelation chapter 5, and repeatedly through the book of Revelation, we find these kinds of experiences where somebody is doing, and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. It's included in these lists of things that people are ascribing to God, blessing and honor, dominion, whatever, and glory. Very literally, glory describes dazzling light. That's why I said last week it has something to do with being really, really shiny and brilliant. In Luke 2, again, with the uh, birth of Christ, and an angel of the Lord appeared suddenly before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. It was extreme. It's the middle of the night, and a, a gazillion watt bulb just <laughs> glory, and it terrified the shepherds. Again, in Revelation, the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it. Why will there be none of these lights? For the glory of God has illumined it. But the description that we are probably most interested in today, because this is what it means in our text, glory describes the destiny of Christ and his people. Luke 24 we are told, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then to enter into his glory? Or Hebrews 10, for it was fitting for God, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. That's where we are heading we are heading with Christ, behind Christ, following Christ. We're on our way to glory. Glory is our destiny. It's wonderful. It's magnificent. It's awe-inspiring. It's radiant, utterly and incomparably amazing. But what is it? What's going to be like in glory? 
Our passage tells us at least two things. Our coming glory will bring two things. Number one, the end of all futility and corruption in the universe. Glory will mean the end, the utter doing away with all corruption, all futility in the entire universe. Secondly, it will bring new, redeemed, glorified bodies for Christians. New universe, new bodies for Christians. Let's look at the first one, the end of all futility and corruption in the universe. Creation has been rendered futile. We see that in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. And in verse 21, he explains what he means by that. Verse 21 says, The creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption. That's what futility is. It's slavery to corruption. Words like entropy, And decomposition, my kids just this week learned, what'd you learn? Atrophy, uh, what did you learn? Entropy and atrophy, they work. What's the big word, $100 word, you remember? They didn't learn this, but they're going to learn it this week. (laughs) You know, the, the students didn't learn, the teacher didn't teach, I understand, right? The second law of thermodynamics, everything's winding down. We know this. Everything's deteriorating. Metal becomes rusty. Bread becomes moldy. Wood becomes rotten. Bananas become brown and mushy. Gross, right? Yes. Siding needs fresh paint. Trees need pruning. Windshield wipers need new blades. Everything is winding down and slowing down and falling down. Everything new will become old and worn out. All life dies. This word futility, and and the whole passage really, there are clear echoes here from the book of Ecclesiastes. I love the book of Ecclesiastes. I know some people think I'm nuts for that. I, I think Ecclesiastes is America's book. If there's a book America needs to understand, it's the book of Ecclesiastes. And I'm absolutely convinced just the word itself, futility, is taken right out of Ecclesiastes. But the the mindset is there. Let me just recall, just, just listen as I share some of what Solomon wrote a long, long, long time before this even. He says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Same word, futility, meaningless. The Hebrew word is it's just a vapor, it's just a breath, it's just a mist that's there for a second and then it just falls away and dissipates. And he says, what what advantage does man have under the sun in all his work? You go to work day in, day out, same thing over and over and over again. And what lasting thing do you have to show for it? Not much. Generation comes, generation goes. Generation comes, generation goes, round and round, the circle of life, as they say. Nothing lasts forever, nothing stays except the earth. You got the sun, it goes up in the morning, goes down at night, goes up in the morning, goes down at night, just this tiresome repetition. It's not going anywhere. And we say, oh, but that's very unscientific. Sun doesn't actually move. It's the earth that goes around and around. And around, and where does it go? 
nowhere. Just spins. Wind goes here and there and back around here and there, just swirling around in meaningless repetition. Water, they knew the water cycle back then. Water falls down, goes down the hill to the rivers and the streams and the oceans. The ocean never fills up, doesn't accomplish anything. Water evaporates, goes up back in the air, comes back down the mountains and the hills, goes back in the streams, just this endless cycle of meaningless nothing. Where's the progress? Where's the profit? All things are wearisome. Eye is never satisfied with seeing. You never get to something where you look on it and you say, ah, I can stop looking now. I don't have anything else I ever want to look at again. Never hear something that makes you say, I'm done hearing. That was the most beautiful thing I could ever imagine. Now we always want to hear more. Give me something new. Give me something new. That's why they call it the news. We want to know what's new, what's new, and there's nothing new under the sun. Just the same old stuff over and over and over and over again. And just as soon as we think someone is really making a name for themselves, a couple generations go by and People say, Tiger who? Oh, I read about him in a history book somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was really good at that. What they used to do, they used to whack that little ball around or something. Golf, I think they called it. Yeah. Tiger Woods. I've read about that. I saw it on History Channel or something. Just, we're nobodies. We're going to be nobodies. That's just sort of a generic, depressing, futile way to look at life. And then at the end of the book... He gets more personal to people. And he says, Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, when you will say, I have no delight in them, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened. He talks about the end of your years being evil. Why does he think they're evil? Well, he says, It's like rain coming and the clouds coming. He says, In that day, the watchmen of the house tremble. Brave men, strong and powerful men with strong hands that could defend their castle, they shake. Old people shaking. And the mighty men who used to stand strong, now they stoop. Because we all just sort of, gravity takes over and we start walking more and more like this. The grinding ones stand idle because there are few. You know what that's talking about? Teeth. They don't really do much because you don't have many left. They've all fallen out and rotted. And those who look through the windows grow dim. We get 40 and we have to start wearing these things. And then after a few months, these things are already outdated and need a better prescription. And then I understand it gets worse and worse and worse. And the doors in the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low. And the one who will rise at the sound of the bird and all the daughters of song will sing softly. You're listening. You don't really hear much. And then you're, what is that? Bird gets you out. Well, what? And you stoop over. What in the world is that noise going on out there? It's just a bird. You've got a lovely granddaughter who sings like an angel. But you go, ah, louder. I can't hear you. I can't hear you. Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. These men who used to work on high rises on the outside, these crazy people, you know, on the 100th floor on the outside cleaning windows, you're thinking, you're, you're nuts. 
Oh, they're brave, not afraid of heights, but suddenly you get them up on a step stool and they become wobbly and fall and break their hip, right? That's what happens. Just, you get a certain age and now you're done. My grandfather, on my mom's side, lived to be 93. When he was 90, he could probably have outrun me in a foot race. I mean, he was at the, it was amazing as a 90-year-old cutting his own grass. He wouldn't let me cut it. I wanted to cut the grass. He wouldn't let me cut it when I was, when I was a boy. Strong man, he uh, breaks his hip, and I went to visit him a, a few months later, and I didn't recognize him. He had shriveled up, lost so much weight, and, and three years later, he was gone. Just in those three years, life in a wheelchair, couldn't get around, just, just because of that broken hip. Just, he was done. The almond tree blossoms. What color are almond leaves and blossoms? Not leaves, but flowers. They're white. Hair turns white. The grasshopper drags himself along. Used to hop around all the place and leap from here to there, but now it's just a slow, slow dragging along. And the caper berry is ineffective. That was the ancient version of Viagra. Serious. Doesn't work. For man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed and the pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel of the cistern is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was. The spirit will return to God who gave it. That sounds good. He's just talking about how you just, you're dead. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. Do you hear the echoes of that? As Paul is saying, the creation was subjected to futility and corruption and decay. Why? God did this. This is God's doing. He says that in verse 20. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. Creation didn't say, hey, we want to be useless. But because of him who subjected it. God did this. The universe moans and groans with distress and agony like a woman trying without success to deliver her baby. Why? Because God has made it that way. Where you can almost feel and sense the, the earth trying to do something, the, the, the world trying, the universe, nature trying to do something productive, but it can't quite get there because God cursed it. It was punishment for the sins of, this, of, of Satan and Adam and Eve. You probably know the passage. Genesis 3 says this. The Lord God said to the serpent, you know the story, Adam and Eve, God's perfect creation at the beginning, man and wife here, they're doing great, and the snake comes in and leads Eve into sin, and that Eve leads Adam into sin, and the Lord turns and says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle. That word more implies something, doesn't it? You're cursed more, but it's all cursed. More than every beast of the field, on your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Next verse. 
And I put enmity, fighting and hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband. I think that means you will want his position of authority and, and he will rule over you. And I think that means he will be a domineering, browbeating kind of guy. Next verse. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, in futile, meaningless labor, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. See, work is not part of the curse. It's the fact that it's so futile, that it takes so much effort to weed the garden and to hoe the garden and water it just right and fertilize it and keep the rodents out and keep the deer from eating and all the hard work it goes into to work and all the things that break down and uh, computers that don't work right and the operating systems that crash and on and on and on the futility. It's not just Microsoft's fault. It's the curse. Now you should use Apple products because they're less cursed, but it's all cursed. <laughs> Till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God did this. He's the one that said to the universe, you are now futile. Now gardens would be full of weeds and thorns and hard ground. Now there would be enmity between animals and other animals, and animals and humans, and between humans and humans. Adam and Eve, there's strife. Cain and Abel, there's strife to the point of death. And on and on and on, you read through the Bible, you read through the history of all civilization, and you see nothing but hostility. Everything now would deteriorate, die, and then decay. God did this. But he did it in hope. Did you catch that at the end of verse 20? Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Someday creation would be released from this futility. There would be no more death, no more decay. It would all be what God originally intended it to be, full of enduring life, bearing fruit, a place of peace and harmony and love and the glory of God. Of God. This hope was implied, in fact, it was promised even in the curse. Now, the first meaning of Genesis 3.15, when God curses the serpent, and he says there will now be enmity between you and the, and the woman and her seed and your seed, the first and, and, and primary application there is literally between us and animals. 
That's why when, when Jeff Siebert goes hunting for a grizzly bear, he doesn't want to find him too close. Because the grizzly bear is not going to show up and say, Hey, Jeff, how you doing? Give me five. I want to see him, but I want to see him through the scope, right? There's enmity and hostility between us and the animal kingdom. But the ultimate application was that someday the woman would have a child who would undo all the corruption. Now, just in saying that she would have a child, do you recognize the grace that's there? Because the promise to Adam was, on the day you eat, the very day, the day you eat what I told you not to eat, you will die. But by promising Eve that she would have children, we find a stay of execution. All right, I'm not going to kill you today. You will still ultimately suffer consequences, but there's hope. He shows Adam and Eve mercy and says, you will have children. It's going to be a very painful process for Eve, but you are going to have children. And ultimately, someday, you're going to have the child. The capital S seed, the capital O offspring, capital C child, the child. And when he comes, he will undo all of this. Undo the works of the devil. And, and creation will once again be purposeful and meaningful and eternal. And Paul says here, creation is eager for that. He personifies creation. Do you see that throughout this? Creation is groaning. Creation is eagerly waiting. It's much how secularists talk about Mother Nature. It's like we can't get away from their idea of this having something beyond just material stuff. Well, Paul is personifying pers uh, creation here in chapter, uh, verse 19, when he uses this idea of anxious longing of creation. In the Greek, it's a strange word. It's the, he, he stacks together three words. I don't think it's found anywhere else in, in, in writing, in ancient Greek writing. He throws together these three words that, that has to do with your neck craning out. I think of a, a little boy who knows that his dad is bringing home a new bike for his birthday. And he's standing on his tiptoes with his head extended as far as he can, looking out the window. Could it be now? Could it be now? Do I see him? Do I see any sign of his car pulling in the drive with my new bike? That's the idea of creation. It's like standing on his tiptoes, standing in his neck. Is it now? Today, can I be released from futility? Is it now? Is it, has it come? Well, that leads to the question, when? When will this curse be lifted? Paul tells us, verse 19, when the sons of God are revealed. Verse 21, when the children of God are freed from their corruption so that the creation can enter into the glory of the sons of God. Which leads us to the next thing that is ours, that will be ours at the coming of the glory. New, redeemed, glorified bodies for believers. See, in verse 23, he says that we also groan. We, we humans, we groan. Not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. And he qualifies, explains what that means. The redemption of our bodies. See, we're all heading toward that Ecclesiastes 12 situation. If we live long enough, enough we're going to stoop and lose our teeth and 
hair's going to turn white and we're going to be afraid and fragile and not see and hear and all those things so well. We're heading there and we groan, saying, when do I get to be released from this? We're waiting to be fully adopted as the children of God. Now, you think, wait a minute, he said already we are adopted. Now he's saying we're waiting for the adoption. Which is it? Well, like so much in the Scripture, it's both. Legally, we're adopted. The paperwork's all been done. It's all set. We're just not home yet. It's very similar to the way the Bible describes our being married to Christ, being the bride of Christ. Strictly speaking, we're more betrothed to Christ. We've been promised to Him, and it's a done deal. It's a sure thing, but we're waiting for our wedding day when when our groom comes and we have the, the marriage feast. So our adoption will be complete when we have new bodies. They're going to be very different. So it goes like this. When, when the Spirit transfers a person from the flesh realm, remember we've been talking about the past weeks, we are born in this flesh realm, and the Spirit brings us into the spirit realm. Well, the Spirit begins to work on our inner man, on our heart, our will, our emotions, our affections, our desires, our thoughts, all those kinds of things. And, and the Spirit is bearing fruit, love, joy, and peace, and patience, self-control, all those things that we talk about in Galatians 5, the, the fruit of the Spirit, and those, he's working those things, but those are all on the inside. Those are all the inner man that's being renewed and recreated. We're being sanctified and empowered and strengthened and matured and built up on the inside, but outwardly, we're getting weaker and weaker and weaker, older and older and older and more and more fragile. Now, some of you who are teenagers or early 20s and you just think, I'm strong, I'm vibrant, I'm vital, I can, I can do anything I want, just wait. <laughs> We've all been there. We've all been there. I'll never forget the first time it was here in Colorado Springs, first time I got sore after a church softball game for crying. Who gets sore after softball? Everybody over 30, raise your hand, you get sore from softball, Right? Like, come on, it's an easy sport, there's nothing to it, you just whack the ball, you run around a little bit, throw some things, and next day I wake up and I can hardly bring myself into church, I'm like 30, 29, 30, how is this possible? And I watch my son just nonstop, go, 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 it's amazing. Well, your day's coming, boy. (laughs) Enjoy it now, because it won't last. Our outer man is decaying, it's wasting away, it's, it hasn't been renewed yet, it's, it's heading to a time when, I hate to be so morbid, but morbidity is actually the right word for it, right? We're becoming tired and frail, and one of these days, our bodies are just going to fall over dead, and it's going to decay, and somebody's going to pay a whole lot of money to put you in a box, in the ground, and you're just going to dissipate, turn into dust. But it won't stay dead. It will not stay dead. Our outer man, as it's being redeemed, it creates this conflict inside. Where as we mature and we want to do more and more good things, we have this, this imprisonment almost. Like, oh, if, I, if, this, if this didn't drag me down, I could do a whole lot better. Now, we can't blame everything on our body. Don't go there. Your hearts and wills are not perfect yet either, and neither are mine. But just imagine, can you imagine what it's going to be when, when our good intentions are not hampered 
by the sinful, sinful body we live in, the tired body we live in? I mean, how many times have you thought, you know, I should go do such and such? Can't get the body off the couch. Someday you're not going to have that battle any longer. Doesn't excuse it now. If you should do it, it's still sin if you don't. Can't say my body made me do it. But now we have this battle. And some of us are just tired, but others of us have ongoing ailments and disease and pain that makes every good intention difficult. It's not always going to be that way. Can you imagine what it's going to be like when our intern, our inner man, our spirits are completely holy and righteous and only wants to do good, and our bodies only want to do good? Oh, how awesome is that going to be? Jesus explained this dichotomy when he's at his worst moment. He's in his darkest hour, right? And he brings his disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus goes to pray and comes back, and what are they doing? They're they're snoozing. Three times. And he comes back and says, couldn't you stay awash for just an hour? And remember what he says? Your spirit's willing, but your flesh is weak. Someday we'll never be hampered by our bodies. Never. It won't stay dead. Right now, our bodies and our spirits are going in opposite directions, but someday our body will be just as alive as our spirit. That'll be glory because we will be entirely glorified. And Paul says here in verse 23, we know this is true because we have the spirit. It's the first fruits. It's the appetizer for the feast that's coming. It's the down payment for the, the, the glorious mansion that awaits. This is why it's so important that you know that you are a child of God. Back to last week, you need to have proof that the Spirit of God is working, that He's producing the fruit of the Spirit in you, that He confirms with your own spirit that you are a child of God, so that when your body is frail and when you struggle with things, you know for sure, someday I'm going to shed this body, it's going to be replaced with a glorified body, and I will live in glory. The spirits are a down payment for that. It's the appetizer. So just, just dare to imagine with me for a minute. The Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about what this is going to be like. Mostly it's negative, what's not going to be there. Uh, this afternoon or sometime soon, go read Isaiah 65 and 66, where Isaiah tells us about the new heavens and new earth, and then read Revelation 21 and 22, where the Apostle John picks up those same themes from Isaiah and explains them a little more fully. And it's, it's amazing. It is wonderful. But it's all imagery and pictures, and we don't know exactly what it literally is going to be like. When he talks about uh, gold, uh, streets paved with gold, I don't know if we're going to have gold streets or not. We might. Some of it's clearly imagery. The, the, the picture of the new Jerusalem there can't be literal. You can't have a city that looks like that and is like that. We're the new Jerusalem. We're, we're told simultaneously we're the bride of Christ. He hears about the bride of Christ and he turns and looks and it's the new Jerusalem, the city. Well, those connote things. We are intimate with Christ. We are his close, affectionate one, but we're also his people, his community. And on and on it goes. But it talks about the things that you know are literal are no more pain, no more tears. No more sorrows, no more struggles, no more death and decay and deterioration. Now just imagine with me for a minute a place where you always feel good. 
always without exception. All the pharmaceutical companies out of business. You're going to feel good physically, always. You're going to feel good emotionally, always. You're going to feel good spiritually, always, without fail. Can you imagine that? Sorry, doctors, you're out of a job too. I think we're going to have jobs. I mean, if, if, you, if you catch what he's saying here, cre- uh, creation has been enslaved to corruption, and it's like the woman waiting to give birth. Well, what's a birth going to look like? Creation free of its slavery. That's not a new, utterly brand new idea. It's the old creation freed from its corruption. It's going to look a lot like it looks right now, only way, 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 way better. I get asked this all the time, like all three of my kids have asked this at some point, and some of your kids have asked me at some point, some of you have asked me, some of the, you know, are, is my dog, my pet, Fido, going to be in heaven? Well, I don't know if Fido's going to be resurrected, but I think there's likely to be dogs in heaven. No cats. Because <laughs> cats were created as part of the curse, but... but I think there's going to be animals, probably a creation much like it is now, only way better. Isaiah talks about the lion laying down with the lamb, and I don't know if that's literal or not, but if it's literal, then that would make sense that animals are fighting and killing each other now because of the curse, but, but the animals then won't. And he says the, the lion will eat straw instead of people. That'll be good. Imagine that kind of place, like today. So I, we're going to have jobs we won't have doctors, we won't have pharmacies, we won't have hospitals, those kind of things. Uh, I guess I'll be out of a job too, won't I? <laughs> huh. But we won't need, you won't need someone to heal your body, you won't need someone to preach the gospel to you and expound the word of God to you day in and day out. Think about this, imagine a place where you never ever again have to ask forgiveness. Can you imagine? Never even the littlest slip-up where you hurt somebody, you offend somebody, you disappoint somebody, or worse. Imagine a place and a time and existence where you are entirely full, satisfied, and filled up. Entirely. There's no room for improvement. There's nothing where you would ever say, if only. There will be no if-onlys there. Lewis illustrates this so perfectly in the last battle at the end where, you know, the the new Narnia is much like the old Narnia. They know they're in Narnia, but they just keep going further up and further in. And and they they can tie it to the old Narnia. It's familiar, but it's just so much bigger and better. And they just keep going and going and going. And the next hill is more wonderful than the hill they were just on. Never stopping. You never get to the top. But it's not like drudgery of climbing a hill. It's like getting to the top of the mountain and realize, oh, there's another mountain that's going to be even better. There's another mountain that's going to be even better. Oh. And not only are you always going to feel good, not only will you never have to ask forgiveness, never will you be entirely full and satisfied and filled up, everyone else will too. Imagine being in a place where nothing ever gets worse. Ever. 
And above all, imagine a place where you are in the unveiled presence of Jesus Christ. That's really why it's going to be heaven. All this other stuff is just the natural consequences of being there with him. But all that really is going to matter to anybody is seeing Jesus. Because what we don't always understand and remember is that every longing of our soul, every single one, everything you think you want, everything without exception, is at its root a longing for Jesus. And if you have Jesus, you don't want anything else. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I don't want anything else. I don't lack anything. I have Jesus. And there he is, and I get to be with him forever and ever. The people who are not going to be in heaven are the people who really want something other than Jesus, so they think. And so they reject him. I could go on and on and on, but I won't. Because all I'd be doing is telling you the same thing over and over again, because the Bible doesn't give us much more than this. All that stuff's not going to be there. It's going to be beyond your wildest dreams. Jesus is going to be there, and you just got to wait for the rest. But we're not there yet. We must wait in hope. That's what the point of the passage is. Now, we don't use hope the way the Bible does. We use hope to mean a mere wish. You know, I, I hope it doesn't rain on my birthday or whatever. Hope the Broncos win today. It's a, it's, it's, you don't know. It's, it's an expression of something you desire. But in the Bible, the word hope always means a certain expectation. The question is not if. The question is when. Paul says this is a hope. It cannot not happen. The universe will be released from slavery to corruption. You will be glorified. It's not an if, it's just a matter of when. But clearly, we're not there yet. It hasn't happened. If it were happening, you wouldn't be hoping for it. You don't hope for something you have. That's what he says in verse 24, 25. For in hope we've been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already has? A single girl hopes for a husband, but a wife doesn't. She may hope for a better husband. That may be a mere wish and not a biblical hope, but anyway, that's another story. But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. Craning necks, is it today? Will today be the time when Jesus comes back and the universe is glorified? The whole point of this is hang on. In perseverance, hold on. If you suffer with Jesus, you will be glorified with him. That's verse 17. You can endure anything, anything, if you have the right perspective and you hold on. No suffering now is worthy to be compared. Are you in physical pain right now? Hang on, persevere faithfully to Christ, someday you're going to have a new body. Are you emotionally wounded right now? Hold on. Be faithful to Christ. Someday all sorrow will be gone. Are you in strained relationships right now? Hold on. If you're 
are suffering with Christ, someday you'll be glorified with him, and all will be peace and harmony and joy and love completely and entirely. And are you being persecuted for your faith? Hold on. Someday God will remove all of our enemies. You've got to have your hope fixed. Now, all of this is because of the gospel. It's because Jesus went to the cross and secured it. If you are not a Christian, if you don't know what it means to believe the gospel, then please ask somebody, come see me, talk to somebody, because this is only for believers, for true Christians. And the last thing I'll say is, if this raises some struggles, if you're having difficulty right now persevering through physical pain, through emotional pain, relational pain, whatever, every Sunday the elders are down here after the service And they would love to anoint you with oil as the scripture commands and pray for you. And God says he will answer those prayers. Come after the service and let them pray and ask the Lord for persevering power to remain faithful to the end so that you'll be glorified with Christ. Let's pray. Father, this is sobering on one hand and yet so lovely and beautiful, and powerful, and truly encouraging on the other. Father, make us people who persevere, who hope in the biblical sense, knowing it's a certainty, it's just not yet. And Father, give us the strength to overcome all challenges and obstacles, for it's worth it. Father, if you would have some people here today to come forward and be prayed for, move in their hearts cause them to do so. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.